to be here this morning, and our family certainly appreciates the generosity that this church has shown, not only in its financial giving, but also in its prayers. Uh, we appreciate the fact this is a praying congregation. We certainly uh, look forward today to being with you, worshiping with you, but also sharing in the Sunday school time maybe some specifics about the work in Thailand. Let's look to the Word of God. <clears throat> in Matthew chapter 11, today we'll be looking at verses 25 to 30. As you're turning, you know that there are many different ways in which Jesus presents himself to people. He presents himself as the good shepherd, which is a prominent theme for many who feel like they are wandering. Jesus presents himself as the light of the world to many who feel when they are in darkness. That's something special as they look to Jesus, that he is one who provides the light. But in our passage today, we'll notice that Jesus presents himself as the means by which we can find rest. And perhaps there's no more relevant theme for our nation today and our world today is the need to find rest in and through Jesus Christ. Let's listen to the word of the Lord. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. All things have been committed to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and to those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray today. First of all, we thank you that you have not left us without a witness, that you have left us with your eternal word of God, which bears witness to us today. Lord, we need to hear this message today. We need to hear that in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone, our souls can find rest. We thank you that in Christ, the enmity has been put away, that we can call you Father, we can call you friend, and we can approach you in prayer and that our hearts can rest assured of our hope, not only for this life, but also, more importantly, the life to come. We thank you for all that. Holy Spirit, we pray that today you will work through this word. We pray that you will convict our hearts of our sin, lead us to repentance, and show us and enlighten our hearts to see the beauties of Jesus Christ and what he has done on our behalf, especially as we approach the table today. Lord, we pray that the preaching of the word today will prepare us to come to the table and to taste and see that you are good. In thy name we pray. Amen. There is perhaps no more relevant theme than the theme of rest. Many years ago, many would have thought that today would have been the end of the 40-hour work week, and yet many today are working more hours than ever. Some today are using the drug Prozac. It used to be used only to help with depression. Today, some are using Prozac actually to help you become a more outgoing person because you're feeling uncomfortable with your social skills. Many times today, people are restless. People are restless with their sense of call, with their sense of, what am I supposed to do with my life? We see it not only in the United States, we see it in Thailand. We see many who live in a land that has been blessed with national peace, having no peace, having no rest. And Jesus today comes and he shows that first of all, our hearts are restless. If you're making an outline, the first thing we'll look at is the restlessness of our hearts. Secondly, Jesus Christ will present himself as the one who gives rest. And thirdly, our pastors will teach us how we can live at rest on a day-to-day -day basis. First of all, our passage is very clear about the restlessness of our hearts. If Jesus did not know that our hearts were restless, he would not make this universal 
invitation for people to come and find rest if that was not a presenting problem of our hearts. Where does this restlessness come from? Well, if you look at the waves of a sea, you know the waves of a sea, which continue to lap against the shore, come from two things. There's the pull of the moon and the gravitational pull of the Earth's core. And those two opposite pulls make the waves to keep lapping. If you go to the ocean, there's no stop to the lapping of the waves. They're restless because of those two opposite pulls. But you also know that in, in the redemptive story of the, of the Word of the Lord, we know that in Genesis, when Adam and Eve were created, they were created to hear only one voice, the voice of God. There was only one allegiance. There was only one trust. And as long as they stayed in that relationship, their hearts were at peace. But as soon as Satan entered the garden, a new voice was in, was, came in, a new opportunity for a new source of trust, a new source of opportunity for a new allegiance. And as soon as Adam and Eve turned and listened to the voice of Satan, the heart of man became restless. Every heart that was ever born after Adam and Eve was born into a restless position because of Adam and Eve's unfaithfulness, their unwillingness to listen to one and only voice, the voice of God, the true rest giver. And we see restlessness in every situation. You see the restlessness of the wicked. Many times we think, who are the people living at unrest? And you think of people living in Thailand, those who have never heard of the word of the Lord. And our scripture says that, Isaiah 57, 19 says, The wicked are like the troubled sea, which cannot rest, where the waters stir up mire and dirt. And we see that in Thailand, we see that people who have turned from, the, from, from God, people who know there is a God, Romans 1, 21, says, Romans 1 says, they know, there's the word, they know there's a God, but they have turned from that God, and they have turned to follow their own ways. And in Romans 1.21, it says their hearts are darkened, and they refuse to glorify God. They exchange the truth of God for a lie, and as soon as they begin to believe those lies, their hearts are filled with restlessness. Scripture shows examples of the wicked. We think of the Philippian jailer before he heard of the word of the Lord. Here you had a violent man working in a, in a jail, and as soon as the, the, the prisoners were released, he was ready to kill himself. We think of the church at Corinth, prior to many of their conversion. They were adulterers, fornicators, abusers of themselves and others. All this dirt is being kicked up by the restlessness of their souls. We think of Bangkok, over 900,000 prostitutes, mafia, transvestites. The dirt that is kicked up from the restless heart of the wicked is obvious. It's, it's clear to us. In our own passage, right before the, Jesus speaks here, he's speaking about Tyre and Sidon. The Jews of Jesus' day and the Pharisees would have looked at Tyre and Sidon and they would have abhorred the people in Tyre and, Tyre and Sidon for their vice and their open, sinful lifestyle. And so we know that the wicked of this world are filled with hearts that are not at rest. And their deeds and their behavior show that there is no rest in their hearts. But our passage also teaches us that the religious people also can live lives which do not have rest. You think of Saul before his conversion. He knew the word of the Lord. He thought that he was pursuing righteousness, but it was his own righteousness. It was the righteousness which comes from the law. And his life was restless. It wasn't showing the rest that you can have through Jesus Christ. And we think of the church here. Think of Capernaum. Jesus here gives a warning. Right before our passage, he warns the people of Capernaum. He says, you've heard my preaching. I've been in your presence. You've seen my miracles. You've seen all of that. And yet you reject me. And you're not living at rest. 
And so you can see that even the religious people of the world today, you think of Buddhists. Many Buddhists live very moral lives. They go to the temple daily. They pray. Many of them live, they don't drink alcohol. They, they live great, great lives. And yet, they're restless. But our passage also warns Jesus here is praying to his Father, but he's praying in the presence of his disciples. And so it's not just the wicked who are restless, and it's not just the religious who are restless. It is also possible to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and live with a heart which is restless. Which is restless. Hebrews warns. Hebrews says in Hebrews 4 that it is possible to look at the promises of God and still have a heart which is filled with unbelief and you have not entered the rest. You are not resting from your deeds. You are not resting for all the things that you want to do to make yourself right with God. And so this passage is an invitation to the wicked, to the religious, and also to those of us who profess faith in Jesus Christ to see the restlessness that is in our own hearts. In fact, the rest that Christ presents will not be precious to us today unless we know that we are people who live with a restless heart. Do you see your own restlessness today? You know, it's kind of tricky, isn't it? If you would have been out in Thailand at the time of the tsunami, if you had been out at sea about three miles, that tsunami would have gone completely under your boat and you wouldn't have noticed a thing. That tsunami, which was able to, to kill over 200,000 people, would have passed right underneath your boat and you never would have noticed that all that restlessness was below you. It's really the same also for our lives. Many of us are living with a tsunami-like restlessness in our hearts that today we might think we can control either by good works or by trying harder, but it's a restlessness that if we're not careful, it can destroy us. Any attempts to pursue and to find our own righteousness apart from the righteousness that comes in and through Jesus Christ will lead us to living not only in restlessness but also not enjoying all the beauty and all the rest which Jesus promises here. The restlessness in our hearts can show itself in many ways. But I think one of the ways we, we learn of it is when we look at the Confession. Today, I'd actually I'd like to refer us to the Heidelberg Confession. I know a lot of us use the Westminster Confession, but the Heidelberg Catechism is also helpful. Because when you listen, it says, regarding the Sabbath day, what does it mean to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy? Here's the answer. God's will for the second commandment is that every day of my life I rest from my evil ways and let the Lord work in me and through his spirit and so begin already in this life the eternal Sabbath. See, all of scripture is promising that there will come a day when we will enter rest. For the Hebrew people, they thought it was Canaan when they would live in the presence of God and enjoy rest. And yet that was not the final rest. Then we can move ahead to Jesus. Jesus promised his disciples rest. And yet they must live a life of turning by faith and resting in the faith in Jesus Christ alone. And even that is not the final rest. The final rest is, will be in glory, when our hearts will be in communion with the Lord and we will live in final rest. But in between glory and the cross, we must live by faith. And that catechism question says, we must rest from our evil ways. Now, you might think today, evil ways. You know, I haven't done anything that evil this week, have I? You know, we think of evil ways, we think of people out there, people in Thailand. But here, Scripture is saying, because in Hebrews 4.10 it says, everyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work. What is that work? 
The work which Hebrews warns us against is any work that we will attempt to make ourselves right with God. It is any work that we will attempt to do after we know that pardon is found in and through Jesus Christ alone, any work that we will attempt to make ourselves right with God. John Calvin said, the reason why so many of us despise God's grace is they are, we are not sensible to our own poverty. There is no more dangerous venom in us than the laziness produced in us by earthly happiness or the deceitful opinion of our own righteousness and virtue. John Calvin says that is a venom that can get into our souls if we think we are righteous in and of ourselves, in and of what we do. What is sin? Our catechism says sin is missing the mark. That's true. Sin is also breaking the rule. But sin is also anything, whether it be good or bad, that you are trusting in today as your means of having fellowship with God apart from Jesus Christ. That also is sin. If today you are trying through your teaching of Sunday school to make that the thing which earns you favor of God, which makes God have to answer your prayers, that in God's eyes can be sin because something that you're trusting in, apart from Christ alone, to be your essential rest, to be the thing that makes you right with God. Why do we overwork? Why do we refuse to say no to people? Is it not because the one voice that we hear from the Word of God is He says, you are in union with Christ, you are approved, you are loved, you are a child of God. And yet the competing opinion that comes from the desires of our own hearts, according to James 4, and from the world is saying, yes, but you must add something to that. How could your God accept you just for that? I have a young girl uh, named Noi in Bangkok who had been, boy, we've been studying the Word of God for over two years. Two years ago, she professed faith in Christ. But from that point on, it has been a constant struggle with doubt and questions and discouragement. For a period of time, she just walked away from it all and said, I don't think I can believe that. She was, I don't even know if I, what my profession is true anymore. And when I started to press her on it a couple weeks before we came back here, I said, Noi, let me walk through the gospel with you. Do you know that you are a sinner? Yes. Do you know that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins? Yes. Do you know that you must rest completely in what Christ has done on your behalf in order to have peace and rest? No. She says, I must add something on my own. It can't be enough. And we need to notice that the thing which is driving her heart to not find rest is also very operational in our own hearts. We must, by faith, turn to Christ and Christ alone daily to find the rest which will keep us from the thing which is inside of us, that unrest which leads us to overwork, which leads us to not say no, which leads us to this people-pleasing spirit where we know that in Christ alone we have complete approval. We are His sons and His children. He is not ashamed to call us brothers. And yet why do we turn to other people and say, I need to hear your voice of approval. I need to work so that you will say to me, you are approved. Why is that? It's because our hearts are also filled with unrest. And we must turn to Christ alone today to find the rest for our souls. So the first application today is to come today and to not to think that the restlessness is all out there. As you pray today, pray that the Holy Spirit will uncover those pockets of unbelief in your heart that have led you also to live with a restless spirit and a restless heart. But you notice in our passage today that Jesus Christ is the one who is able to give us rest. 
there has to be something that Jesus does and gives that works at that inner striving in our heart. If it was just Jesus saying, what would Jesus do? It wouldn't help that functional dynamic that's going on in our heart. If it's just a matter of saying, what would Jesus do? All that happens is the dirt and the mire that gets kicked up from our hearts is cleaner. It's not as dirty as what we see in Bangkok. It's just cleaner. Because what we need is not someone to say, trust in these rules or follow these rules. What we need is someone to work at that inner restlessness. We need someone to speak to us and say that we are approved in God's sight. There is no more enmity. You do not need to be a fear of death. You do not need to be afraid of the punishment and the penalty for your sin. All of that has been removed. And that is what Christ speaks to us today. Christ says in this passage, Come to me, all of you who are weary. All of you. Because Christ knows that the world cannot bring that rest. If you are yoked to sin, sin always makes false promises. Sin always is a false trust. It cannot bring rest. The Pharisees would have said, been yoked to the Torah. Come, be a disciple of the Pharisee and be yoked to the Torah. But the Torah, the law, cannot bring the rest which Christ can bring. Buddhism Buddhism says all of life is restlessness. They're very clear about that. And they have four noble truths. And those four noble truths teach that all of life is restlessness. But the fourth noble truth is an eightfold path. Because Buddha said, don't come to me. I will not give you the rest. I will teach you how to find the rest. You must get up and you must follow it. Here's the eightfold path on how you're going to find rest. And if you are yoked to anything in the world, or you are yoked to any law, or you are yoked to any system of following a law, there is no rest. That's why you notice in this passage, there's two things we notice about the rest that is found in Christ. First of all, it's given by God by grace. Look at verses 25 to 28. This is a hard saying of Christ. It says, you have hidden, you have revealed. In other words, no one will find this rest that is found in Christ alone unless God gives them the spiritual eyes and ears to see and hear it. No one will find it. It is a God-given ability to see that in Christ there is rest. To see that in Christ the enmity between you and God is taken away. It's a God-given ability to know that your sin separates you from God. It is a God-given ability to know that all the restlessness in your heart isn't a problem of geography or circumstance or relationships. Fundamentally, it's a problem that you are not right with God or you're not living right now at right with your relationship with Jesus Christ. That is a God-given ability. And here it says that God, it's an invitation to the world to come and find rest, and yet we know that it will only be given by God and only some will see it. The bad news is that you can't do it on your own. You can't make this rest happen in your soul by yourself. But the good news is that it comes as a gift. It comes as a gift by God. That we know today, as the Word of God is being proclaimed in churches around this nation and worldwide, we know that as some come to worship, they're going to hear the Word of God, and that God is going to work through the work of the Holy Spirit to convict them of their sin and to show them the beauty of Jesus Christ. They might come for ten Sundays and not understand it and not hear it. And on the eleventh Sunday, they will come, and the Holy Spirit will convict their heart that in Christ alone, they are made right with God and that they can find rest. 
It is a God-given ability, and it's given to us by grace. But the second thing you notice in this passage is that the root of rest is found in trusting in Christ. We must come to Christ. Christ, as it says here, is the end of the law to all who obey. It is Christ's work that we rest in that allows our heart to be at rest and then go about his work. It is Christ's work. There still has to be a work. The law has to be attained. But it's Christ's work which gives us that rest. Our obedience doesn't produce that rest, but our obedience flows from that heart which is at rest. We must come to Christ. And there's two applications that I think come from this. The first is, the first is repentance. If you notice in our passage, in everything that happens in verses 20 to 24, Jesus here is denouncing cities, but he's denouncing cities that should have known better. He's denouncing cities who have seen his miracles, heard his teaching, and have, have had him in their presence. And he's denouncing them. Why? Look what it says. It says, you haven't repented. It says you haven't repented. And one of the things that I think we learn over time as believers is we need to be filled with the spirit of repentance. This last year in, in Thailand was, was a very hard year for our team. We had gone through a period of time where we saw a lot of conversions. We had 180 people that we had contact with. We had 18 professions of faith. We had eight baptisms, and we were growing. And at that point, you know, I was thinking, yeah, good church planter, good worker. This is what missions is all about. Then what happened? Short-termers didn't come. We had to close our school. Almost all the contacts we lost contact with. Some of the believers started to go through tough times. Some were moved away for work. Some moved away for education. Some fell away because of sin and family pressure. All of a sudden we get to February and all of a sudden I start wondering, what's wrong? I started thinking, not only am I not a good church planter and not a good missionary, but there must be something wrong between me and God. I must not be a good child of God. And what was happening is that fundamental shift. You know, when the tsunami started, it was because there was a shift in the tectonic plates that caused that earthquake under the water, which caused a tsunami above the water. But in our hearts, what was happening is when I, before, my fundamental sh trust was in Christ alone, it wouldn't have mattered how much fruit I would have seen initially. It wouldn't have mattered whether I would have heard the praise of man. It wouldn't have mattered whether I would have wrote you a good prayer letter or had to say in a prayer letter, sorry, we've had a barren time. It wouldn't have mattered. But now in February, as God is pulling away these things and we're going through a tough time, I realized that my heart had shifted. My identity wasn't found in Christ. My identity was found in my work done for Christ. And out of it came discouragement, doubt, frustration, fear, embarrassment. And this passage is saying is one of the most important things. It's a mercy of God that we can see the restlessness of our hearts. It's a mercy that God gives to us that we can see it, confess it, and turn again by renewed faith to Christ. It is a mercy that he would reveal that to us. It is not a mercy to just say, try harder, when underneath you got those plates shifting and you know it can produce all that restlessness in your, in your life. Our passage shows us the mercy that comes through Jesus Christ. But this passage also shows us that the most important thing you can work on today is not your work for Christ, but it's growing in your understanding, in your identity in Christ. 
the most fundamental thing you can work on and pray for and strive towards and worship towards is growing in your identity in Christ. Because that identity in Christ, as we come and partake of the table today, we're going we're gonna to taste and see that that identity that we have in Christ is true. God is faithful to his promises. He will never reject his people. We must be filled with repentance. But also we must be people who are growing and understanding of our identity in Christ. That is how we will maintain that sense of rest that we will find in Christ. But how do we live at rest? Does our passage give us any suggestions on how to live at rest? I think it does. The first suggestion, and the first, actually it's not even a suggestion, it's a command, is come to me. We must come to Christ. Coming to Christ means what? It means believing in Christ, but it also means trusting in Christ. That believing and trusting is what we would call faith. We must turn by faith to Christ. The Heidelberg Confession, question answer 21, what is true faith? True faith is the deep-rooted assurance created in me by the Holy Spirit through the gospel that out of sheer grace earned for us by Christ, not only others, but I too have had my sins forgiven, have been made forever right with God, and have been granted salvation. Jesus Christ invites us to come to him today, especially as we come to the table, to come and to have our faith renewed. Saving faith is a gift from God. Renewal of faith is also a gift of God as we pray for the Holy Spirit to work in and through our lives. But you must come. You must come. Today as we have the table, as you are preparing your hearts to come to the table, you must repent of your sin, but you must come. You must not think that there is something that is so heinous in your life that would keep you from the table. Christ's blood his pardon, His righteousness is for all. Whether you're sitting here in a North American lifestyle or whether you're a mafia member in Bangkok, the pardon is the same. The invitation is the same. But you must come. You must come and taste and see that the Lord is good. Secondly, you notice in our passage, he says, take my yoke and learn from me. Taking the yoke in the days of, of Jesus would have meant becoming a disciple of. And so when Jesus says here, you must not only come, but you must take my yoke, it means you must take his yoke upon yourself and you must learn from him. You must become his disciple. And you notice that there's two things that this does for us, which is far better than being yoked to the law or far better than being yoked to Buddhism. What happens is when you become yoked to Christ, what do you see? The first thing you see is the depth of your sin. Because when Jesus would say, don't commit adultery, the Pharisees would think that as long as you didn't sleep with someone, you didn't commit adultery. The Buddhists would think that, yeah, maybe I can commit adultery with a, a minor wife, but as long as I do good in other areas, my good deeds will outweigh my bad deeds. So it's really not that big of a deal. But when you are yoked to Christ and you become a, you, you're living in union with Christ and you're his disciple, you realize that don't commit adultery is also every lustful look. It's every time that you are more emotionally attached to somebody else other than your spouse. It's every time you get on that website and you check out the pornographic website. It's every time, even if you're a single, that, you, that someone else has gotten, that you, live, you could be looking lustfully when you are in union with Christ, who is your bride. Who's your groom? Excuse me. Who's your groom? That's why being yoked to Christ is actually going to show us more and more the depth of our sin. If you're yoked to anything else, you will rationalize your sin. You'll look away from your sin. You'll compare your sin to others and think, I'm not so bad. But being yoked to Christ is going to show us a depth of our sin that we never saw before. 
But being yoked to Christ is also going to show you the greatness of His love. Because when you're yoked to Christ, you're going to realize that Christ put on the yoke of the law for you. And when all the times when you look at the law and you say, I try, I try, but I can't do it, you come to Christ. He put the yoke of the law on Himself. He obeyed it for you. You come to Christ and you realize that Christ makes no false promises. It is a secure trust. Every time you come to Christ, His mercy is new every morning. Buddhism can't promise that. The law can't promise that. But in Christ, the fulfiller of the law, that is a promise. And so you see that being yoked to Christ by being His disciple, you learn not only the depth of your sin, but you also learn far more the greatness of His love for you, the greatness of God's love for you, which will give you more assurance of your pardon and more assurance of your hope. But that's not the final thing. Notice what it says in this passage. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What's the burden? It's not only that we have to come to Christ and we have to become his disciple and learn from him, but we also have to take his burden upon ourselves. And this passage doesn't tell you what that burden is. We know that it's lighter than our sin. It's lighter than trying to perform under the law. But we don't know what that burden is. But I think in Scripture, Paul helps us because Paul gives us at least three burdens really quickly. One of the burdens is that we must bear with one another. Galatians 6.2 says, Carry each other's burdens, and in doing so, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Carry one another's burdens. That means today, as you think about your row here, you will allow the pain and the suffering of someone sitting next to you to come onto your life. You will not walk away from those people. You will not avoid them. You will look to become engaged in the lives of people, to know them well enough to know what they struggle with, to know them well enough to be engaged in their life, and to say, here, shift some of that weight, shift some of that burden that you're carrying onto my life. I will pray for you. I will stand with you. I will encourage you. I will counsel you from God's Word. I will help you see Christ. Again, if you're, bird, if you're yoked to anything else other than Christ, do you see the problem? If you're yoked to the law, if you're just a religious person, what's going to happen? You're going to come alongside someone and say, I want to be there for you. I want to help you. But you're not doing it for them. You're not doing it out of love. You're doing it because you think that doing it will make you more worthy in God's eyes. And then God will have to answer your prayers because look what I'm doing for you. It is not really love. Being yoked to Christ allows us to take the burden of bearing with one another and truly do it, not for any other motive in our own heart, but doing it out of gratitude for what Christ has done for us. We can truly bear one another's burdens. The second burden that we find in Scripture is Philippians 3.10. I want to know Christ, the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of sharing in His suffering. It's the burden of suffering for Christ's sake. Do you see the problem? If we are yoked to anything other than Christ, what will happen when we go through periods of suffering? We're going to get angry at God. We're going to say, God, this isn't fair. Look at what I've done for you. Look at who I am. Look at my life. It's not fair. Why did it come upon me? Why not somebody else? Or we'll be filled with despair. It can never change. There's no hope. Or we'll be filled with indifference. When you see the suffering of people in Owensboro or Evansville, you will look the other way. You think it's not your problem. But when you're yoked to Christ, what you realize is that now you're also yoked to carrying the burden of His suffering. You will engage the lives of other people. You will be willing to suffer your loss of reputation by who you are trying to help. Others might say, why are you spending time with that person? Why are you hanging with them? Why are you trying to encourage them? That's not, that's not who you are. 
And yet you will know you will want to speak the word of Christ to them. And you'll be willing to suffer whatever happens for Christ. It is only being yoked to Christ which will allow us to endure our own suffering, but also being willing to suffer for others. Finally, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. The love of Christ controls us. One died for all so that all those who live no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. He goes on to say, we are Christ's ambassadors as if God is speaking through us, if, it's, if his message is through us. Paul realized that he lived under the burden of proclaiming the gospel to the lost. And again, if you're yoked, if you're just a religious person and you're yoked to anything else other than Christ, you will not have the love for the lost. You'll either look at the prostitute in Bangkok and you'll look down at her. You'll think she can never change. Or you look with indifference. You'll think the gospel can never have a difference in her life or it's not my job. It's Dave's job. You'll think that the lost out there are not your responsibility. And yet as you enter Vacation Bible School Week this week, you will realize that part of the burn we carry is the burn of proclaiming the gospel to those who still do not know the gospel. Because we'll realize as you come to the table is that my ability today to live at rest, to know that the enmity from, because of sin has been turned away, I can call God Father, He calls me Son, Jesus Christ is not ashamed to call me brother. We know that all that has happened because of a work of God's grace and it is a gift from God. And so today and this week as we enter Vacation Bible School, we will seek to proclaim the good news of the gospel to whoever crosses our paths because we know that just as our lives is a, a gift of God's grace, we are a miracle of grace, so would be their conversion. And you know that then when Christ puts this word on your lips where you say to people, don't look for rest over here, don't look for rest over here, don't look for rest over here, come here to church, come sit under the preaching of the word of God, come let me disciple you, let me share with you what I have found in Christ, you know that it works and it can bring your heart soul's rest. Sin entangles our hearts, doesn't it? We might have started on the day, if you remember the day in which you professed faith in Jesus Christ, you might at that day have remembered that you were weary from all of your labor and you need the, the rest that came through Christ. But then what happens? As we grow in our Christian life, we tend to look at our actions, our deeds, our ability to obey, and we use that as the guide at whether we should find rest. And we look at our life and we're discouraged by our sin and our failure. We feel that we can't ever have rest again. Today, as you come to the table, the table is a warning to the comfortable. The table is warning the comfortable that if you're looking anywhere else to find rest, there's no other place except in Christ. And it's a warning to the comfortable that if you have sat for year upon year hearing the Word of God, being taught in Sunday school, having Christian parents, and yet you have not professed your own need to rest in Christ, it warns you, don't be comfortable in that. Let your understanding of your sin drive you to Christ. Find rest in Christ today. But the table is also an invitation to the weary. We need the table today, don't we? Because today we come to worship and we're weary. We've seen the sin of the past week. We've seen our own failure. And today we must come again and taste and see. Here is Jesus Christ, humble and meek, turning to us saying, in your humility and your meekness, come and find rest for your soul. Lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in Him and Him alone, gloriously complete. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you. Heavenly Father, we thank you, first of all, for sending Jesus Christ to be our righteousness. That because of Jesus Christ's righteousness, and today, because if we by faith have turned to him, we are clothed in that robe of righteousness, we stand complete. Because we stand in union with your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you accept us because of what Christ has done for us. We thank you that the law has been fulfilled in Christ, that Christ is our wisdom. He is our righteousness. He is our hope. And we praise you for that. We thank you for providing a way in which we can be made right again with you. We also pray, Father, today as we come and we taste and see, as we lift the elements today, we pray that you prepare our hearts to go out from this place and to be willing to take the burden of suffering, to take the burden of proclamation, and to take the burden of bearing for and with other people upon ourselves, that we will long to be yoked to you, to be your disciple, and to learn from you. As we taste and see today at the table that you are good, give us a heart which is teachable. Give us a heart which wants to learn from you daily, and then to turn by faith each day in you daily. We praise you for your work in our lives. We pray for the nations. We pray for Owensboro. We pray that many will come to find rest in you and you alone. In thy name we pray. Amen.